90.3 FM in Montreal and on www.ckut.ca on the World Wide Web. News, interviews, and music featuring the voices of prisoners, their allies, and supporters. Tune in to the Prison Radio Show on the fourth Friday of every month between 11 a.m. and noon, and every second Thursday of the month between 5 and 6 p.m. To get involved in Prison Radio, or if you need to access past programs, email prison at ckut.ca. job, Harvey, to give a man back the dignity he once had. Your only interest is in how he behaves. You'll conform to our ideas of how you should behave. I am not a number. I am a free man. You were a number. You weren't a man. You I wasn't Jim Crow. And hell, I was number 586. Why do you do a warder's job? It's a good job. Responsible job. Uh, officers like myself trying to... Scum. We're only enforcing the law. Oh, the law. The law. When they hang my husband, is that just... Good morning and welcome to the Prison Radio Show on CKUT 90.3 FM. I'm Virginia. And I'm Jean. And we'll be your hosts for today. Today we'll be trying out something we haven't done in a while on the show. We've made a radio documentary about the new migrant prison that is being built in Laval and the growing struggle against it. The documentary is about 45 minutes long, so it'll take up most of our show. We hope you like it, but first, here are some news items. A federal judge in Virginia has sent U.S. Army whistleblower Chelsea Manning back to prison after she refused a second subpoena ordering her to testify to a grand jury. The order came just week after Manning was freed after spending 62 days behind bars for refusing to testify about her leak of hundreds of thousands of state, secret State Department and Pentagon documents to WikiLeaks including evidence of U.S. war crimes. Chelsea Manning spoke to the media just before she was taken into federal custody. Jails and prisons exist as a dark institution, and despite that, it doesn't frighten me or disturb me. I've already been to jail. I've already been to prison. So attempting to coerce me with a grand jury subpoena is just not going to work. Manning faces up to 18 additional months in prison and can be fined up to $1,000 a day while she refuses to testify. Since 2012... Immigration enforcement in the United States has used solitary confinement as a routine punishment for thousands of immigrants and asylum seekers located locked up in immigration jails across the country. A new damning investigation by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists reveals this widespread abuse of solitary confinement in immigration jails overseen by U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. The United Nations Special Reporter on Torture says solitary confinement should only be used in exceptional circumstances and defines extended use of solitary as inhuman and degrading treatment. Despite this, a review of more than 8,400 reports of solitary confinement in ICE detention found that immigration officers repeatedly used isolation cells to punish gay, transgender, and disabled immigrants for their identities and to target other jailed immigrants for actions like kissing consensually or hunger striking. Almost a third of the people held in solitary confinement suffered from mental illness. In at least 373 cases, immigrants were put in isolation for being potentially suicidal. In nearly 200 instances, immigrants were held in solitary confinement for more than six months. 
For more information on the investigative report, visit democracynow.org. This weekend in the, in the annual Montreal Anarchist Book Fair, the book fair includes two days of radicals selling their books, zines, and other wares, as well as workshops, games, and a kid zone. It is play, taking place Saturday and Sunday this weekend from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. at CEDA, CEDA, sorry, and the George Vanier Library near Lyon Gru Metro in Little Burgundy. Listeners of the prison radio show might be particularly interested in two workshops taking place as part of the book fair. The first is on Saturday, May 25th at 1 p.m. There will be an introduction to prison abolition workshop, and on the same day at 3 p.m., there will be a workshop on the struggle against new migrant prison in Laville, which you'll be hearing more about on our show today. On Sunday the 25th, CKUT will be hosting a workshop on private radio, DIY, digital editing, and more starting at 11 a.m. On May 15th, people held a, public, uh, held a protest outside Dekalb, prison, a county prison in Georgia. During the demonstration, prisoners smashed out windows in all three buildings of the facility in order to communicate with people outside. Prisoners shouted, help us, and there is mold, while another prisoner held up a sign to the window that read, strangled by CO King while cuffed behind back. The prison has been under scrutiny since April 2019, when photos and video of prisoners in the jail were released to the internet and went viral. The photos included messages written in styro on styrofoam food trays like we sleep and breathe mold and hashtag justice for inmates. That's it for our news today. Without further introduction, here is our radio documentary about the new about a new migrant prison in the federal government is building in Lavelle, a suburb of Montreal. story about migrant detention in Canada, what it is, how it works, and where it's headed. In particular, we're going to focus on a new migrant prison that is slated to be built outside of Montreal, and some new programs calling themselves Alternatives to Detention that are being unrolled alongside the new prison. In the process, we'll hear from migrants and their supporters, people organizing against the new prison, Senator Kim Pate, and John Howard Society staffer Cassandra Roy. Our immediate story starts in 2016, with the government announcement of a new National Immigration Detention Framework. The framework comes after years of struggle inside Ontario provincial prisons by migrants being held indefinitely. Years of hunger strikes and people skipping their detention review hearings culminated in a framework that left intact most of the critiques made by the strikers. What the framework did was set aside $138 million so the government could build two new migrant prisons, one in Surrey, BC, and one in Laval, Quebec. In 2017, the government hired the companies LeMay and Group A to design the prison outside of Montreal. In our first clip, we'll hear from M. Goldman, who is part of the group Ni Frontières Ni Prison, which is fighting the prison. 
The clip is from the podcast From Embers, and the voice you'll hear is actually one of the hosts of From Embers reading Em's words. Well, one thing specifically about LeMay's involvement, if you read through LeMay's plans for this new prison, it becomes really clear what they're actually being contracted to do. A whole lot of the way the government is selling these migrant prisons has to do with them being more humane. So what that actually means is you can look at the plans and they'll have designs for a children's area, but there will be a huge barrier blocking anyone from seeing the children. Or there will be notes like there has to be barriers obfuscating any iron bars or anything like that. So the entire project is about whitewashing the larger project of imprisoning migrants. And it's clear to us that there's no such thing as a more humane facility for doing this. That prisons are inherently unjust and inhumane. That the mother who's being detained and separated from her family or children doesn't care about how nice the barrier is surrounding the prison or how sustainable the concrete is, that these are fundamentally unjust institutions. So the new prison is being sold to the public as more humane, and M finds it hard to believe that a prison could be humane, period. But where does the National Immigration Detention Framework come from? How does migrant detention actually work in Canada? We were curious to learn more, and so we checked out the documentary In the Shadow of Borders, which was made by people in Montreal. Here's a clip we wanted to share that features Rosalind Wong from the group Solidarity Across Borders. There are detention centres all across Canada, the largest being in Laval, just north of Montreal. At any given point in time, entire families are being detained, as well as unaccompanied minors, so children without either of their parents. More and more money, an unprecedented amount actually, is being invested by Canada into detaining and deporting migrants quicker and faster, whereas the processes to actually look at applications and accept migrants to stay are slowly being gutted. Canada is one of the few countries in the world where there are no limits on how long someone can be detained. Detentions have been justified to the Canadian public, often by citing public safety concerns or the need to protect Canadians. But the truth is that the majority, the vast majority of people who are being detained have no criminal charges and are actually there for reasons like lacking proper ID documents or because the agent had the slightest suspicion that they wouldn't leave on their removal date. Indefinite detention of migrants and the detention of migrant children are a part of Canada's detention and deportation regime. With the implementation of the National Immigration Detention Framework, it seemed to us like this detention and deportation regime might be expanding. Last year, the federal government announced its intentions to increase deportations by 30%. The government claims the new migrant prison in Laval will be able to hold 15 more migrants than the current migrant prison in Laval. And the new prisons are only half the story. Here's another clip from the podcast From Embers, talking about how migrants held in prison in Ontario went back on strike in 2016 after the National Immigration Detention Framework was announced, and explaining another component of the framework, which we mentioned earlier, which are being called alternatives to detention. After the government announcement was made, there was a renewed series of hunger strikes in Ontario because of the way the government went about this. They made it really clear they're not interested in listening or responding to migrants or their demands. 
and this announcement was in no way reflective of them conceding to that campaign of hunger strikes. About $5 million of that $138 million that was announced in 2016 for these new prisons was actually directed to something the government is calling alternatives to detention. And while it's a pretty small percentage of the overall spending, it's been a central part of the government's messaging. And they're selling it as ways of addressing migrants in Canada without prisons. But in practice, it's about expanding the technologies they use to control migrants. So they have technologies like the ankle bracelets that they engineered during the security certificate days in the early 2000s. And now they're going to partner with the John Howard Society to force migrants into halfway houses. So it's clear that this announcement has very little to do with reducing the carceral system for migrants in this country. It's actually about making that carceral system more sustainable. We were curious to learn more about these alternatives, so we got in touch with the John Howard Society directly. For those who don't know, the John Howard Society is a nonprofit that has historically worked within the criminal justice system. Their mission says that they work with people who have come into conflict with the law, push for changes in the criminal justice process, engage in public education on matters related to criminal law, and promote crime prevention through community and social development. The nonprofit started out as a religious organization that brought spiritual help to prisoners in the Toronto area starting in 1867. As far as we know, this is the first time the John Howard Society is being paid to supervise people who are not in contact with the criminal justice system. Here's a clip of an interview we did with one of their staffers who explains the new alternatives to detention program. Sure. So my name is Cassandra Roy, and I'm the project coordinator for the CBSA Alternatives Detention Program for the John Howard Society of Canada. So the John Howard Society was awarded contracts to work with the Canadian Border Services Agency on a program that's part of the government's new alternatives to detention. Can you talk about the specific programs that the John Howard Society has implemented and that you're overseeing? Uh, sure. So the program that was implemented is called Community Case Management and Supervision, which is an alternative to detention program that allows certain individuals who are detained in custody by the CBSA to be released into the community while they wait out the resolution of their immigration proceeding. Um, and as an alternative to detention program, the main objective is to address the factors that mitigated against the person's release in the first place. So for the most part, this translates as supervision, such that we help make sure that these folks stick around and show up for their proceedings when they're required to. But we also might address other things that the person needs assistance with in order to remain relatively stable in the, in the community while they wait for a conclusion on their file. So for example, some may have sub substance abuse issues, so we might connect them uh, with a local Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous group for health, or others may need help finding housing, so we might try connecting them to local shelters for temporary accommodation. <clears throat> and some might also need help finding resources uh, to address their physical or mental health needs, so we would assist them with, um, with that as well. Just to be clear, what Ms. Roy is talking about is placing migrants into halfway houses that the John Howard Society already uses to surveil people on parole or probation in the so-called criminal justice system. Here's her explaining more. So again, depending on the person's um, assessed level of risk, they might be referred to um, just the, the regular uh, supervision program 
or if it's uh, decided that they need a little bit more support, they would be referred for um, a greater level of supervision. We provide that with our community residential facilities, uh, which are, as you as you called them, halfway houses, sort of transition houses. Um, so they're, they would stay at those facilities um, and have to um, abide by uh, stricter conditions. Um, supervision might also be a little bit more involved, but we uh, we like to think of it more as support. So we just provide them with greater support um, and help them make sure that they have uh, everything they need to um, be successful in their transition into the community while they wait for the resolution of their uh, immigration proceedings. Generally, the program is run out of um, our John Howard Society regional affiliates main buildings and it, it generally has been tacked on to the, the bail supervision program because we found um, we found that the two fit nicely together and the people who were already doing bail supervision um, generally had the skills and qualifications that uh, we were looking for to run this program because the level of um, supervision is similar. Uh, so yes, it would be in the same building and for in terms of the, the halfway housing where these people are, are placed, uh, generally they are also placed in the same building as um, our um, our Correctional Services Canada um, individuals would be placed in. So, um, yep, they're they're all together. In the federal prison system, many people see halfway houses as an extension of their sentence. We've been told that historically, halfway houses started as a benevolent reform project for people released from prison who had nowhere to live after they got out. However, in the interim decades, halfway houses have become a mandatory part of many people's sentences. The houses generally have curfews. Some require people to provide phone numbers for any location they might go to outside of the house. And staff can, and often do, call the police and correctional services if someone is late for curfew, misses a meeting with staff, or doesn't show up for a mandated community activity like Alcoholics Anonymous. It is unclear whether the system would work the same for migrants. Um, so I can't say what we're specifically mandated to do, but uh, just in terms of, of supervision, um, we do some, some some of the individuals who are referred to us are um, under release conditions. So yes, it would be similar to parolees that are released uh, by the Parole Board of Canada. Um, and if they are found to be in violation of one of those conditions, one of their conditions, so yes, uh, for example, if if they don't show up for one of their check-ins with their supervisor or their their caseworkers, what we call them. Um, then, depending on depending on the situation, it's really a, on a case by case basis. Um, they may we may need to uh, contact um, authorities to try and locate the person if we feel that the um, the risk that they um, they've absconded is legitimate. In the criminal justice system, these kinds of situations often result in someone being thrown back in prison. Though Ms. Roy doesn't specify, we assume that there are definitely situations in which a migrant or refugee who is under supervision by the John Howard Society could get thrown back in detention for missing one of the many meetings required by their release plan. Whether that's a meeting with the John Howard Society supervisor, an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, or a meeting with a CBSA agent. The John Howard Society tends to emphasize the support version of this story and tends to downplay the surveillance part of this story. 
They want to emphasize the rehabilitative aspects of halfway houses and not the control aspects. Keep in mind that before these alternatives to detention, migrants were often released with no electronic monitoring and were required only to show up at their next hearing with the CBSA. There was no additional supervision mechanism. Keep in mind, too, that though migrants imprisoned in Ontario were demanding an end to immigration detention, they were never consulted on what that end could look like. In some ways, this story started to sound familiar to us, so we did some more research. In the late 1980s, there was a new wave of outcry over the conditions in the Federal Prison for Women in Kingston, Ontario. The Task Force on Federally Sentenced Women was created and conducted research and made a report. The task force recommended that changes be made to the federal prison system for women, changes that sound a lot like the ones being proposed for the new migrant prison in Laval. There would be curtains on the windows, guards wouldn't wear uniforms, the prisons themselves would be more open to people on the outside coming in and interacting with prisoners. But then something else happened. Here's Senator Kim Pate explaining that story. Uh, well, I came in uh, to the um, as the national director of EFRI after the task force had finished its work and the task force on federally sentenced women was um is still seen internationally as one of the most you know really revolutionary approaches uh to basically prison reform and but even before the prisons were built it was undermined and so why it was seen as revolutionary is women who were in prison were involved women who had been in prison and half of the members of the task force were members of the community and and half were government but not just corrections it was status of women it was i can't remember all of the groups indigenous uh, at, at the time it was called indian affairs and uh, so there were a number of groups involved and uh, individuals throughout the system. And so what they designed looked very different from most prisons in the, the world, and hence the reason it was seen internationally as, a, uh, as something innovative. But within before it was even built, uh, new security measures were being put in place, fences were being uh, envisioned. Uh, eventually, we ended up with basically six federal prisons for women, including one of which is called a healing lodge, but um, all of which are involved security, all of which have segregation cells, all of which are uh, multi-level for uh, minimum, medium, and maximum security. So what was planned uh, was off the rails before they were even started, and even once they were opened, they were refortified many times over. Can you talk about what was originally planned? Like what was in, what did the task force write down in terms of what they wanted to see initially? So what was planned was there was a recognition that the majority of women in prison are low security and uh, risk and low risk to public safety. So the idea was that um, there would be very little programming in the prisons that only those who, because of their sentence, either life sentences or, um, you know, some other designation who couldn't go out, Everybody else would go out to, for programming in the prisons, and that the uh, the community would come in. And so, I was just in Truro earlier this week, uh, or last week, sorry. And when I was in Truro, I was pointing out to the senator who was visiting with me that um, that the gymnasium was built right on the edge of the uh, the front of the the property. So that the community could use it as well, because Truro didn't have a lot of recreation, you know, public recreation space. And the idea was that the community would come in and out. That has never happened. Um, and and uh, now there are fences around all of them. 
There are eye-in-the-sky cameras. There are maximum security units that were never envisioned, as well as segregation units. And the maximum security units are basically segregation units as well. And so that was what it was envisioned that women would be in in prison um, only if they posed a risk to uh, security, and that otherwise they would be pro- doing programming and being involved in uh, activities in the community, whether it was you know drug or alcohol issues, whether it was anti-violence work, whether it was um, work releases, that sort of thing, volunteer work. And so, and that had already changed by the time the as I say, the prisons were due to open. And then initially, after the situation of the prison for women that gave rise to the Arbor Inquiry, which was occurred 25 years ago, uh, then the um, after that, there was a, uh, a plan to re-fortify and double the numbers of uh, people, um, the numbers of segregation and maximum security cells. And then they were quadrupled eventually. And now we have um, a significant proportion of people end up in higher security. I mentioned I was just in Nova Scotia last week, and when I went into Nova when the, the prison was being built, when the task force did its work, there were 13 women, one, three, 13 from the entire four Atlantic provinces who were serving federal sentences. That, the, that prison now has a capacity of, uh, it may even be over 100 now, and on average, there are anywhere between 70 and 80 women in that prison. So that, you know, in the space of 25 years, we've seen, my math is not great, but, you know, six times the number of women that were there initially. Um, and so we're, you know, we've seen an exponential increase. And in part, judges will say, because uh, people don't have to go as far away from home, and not surprising that, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia are some of the top uh, jailers, uh, the jailing of women. But the other reality is we've seen increased inequality more generally and a more punitive approach to uh, crime and criminal justice that over the past two decades that have really fueled it as well. So more mandatory proliferation of mandatory minimum penalties as well as um, you know tough on crime, so-called uh, rhetoric and but not just rhetoric action in terms of longer and more punitive sentences. Also, the parole board for many years became a more of a detaining body than a releasing body. And so uh, it was the interplay of all of those things. But certainly the fact that there were now more prisons and more beds uh, was part of that. So what stands out? Certainly there has been a move towards not just more punitive criminal justice practices in this country, but also more punitive immigration detention and deportation practices. What can we learn from the story about the changes to the women's federal prison system? First, though the reforms being proposed sounded good on paper, we need to see any additional cells or additional square footage of prison grounds as an expansion of the system. Second, the government will always use security matters as an excuse to then further expand the system. We wanted to know what Senator Pate thought the lessons were from this story about the women's federal prison system, and so we asked her. Here's what she said. So what we know is the more you create barriers, it actually limits the number of opportunities you have for programming, for other services. It means that if people are more isolated, that you need more, the the argument goes that you need more staff to supervise and ensure security is kept. And and, And then if you add to that, more people means 
fewer opportunities for people to have access to programs and services, visits and the like, more tension. And so it becomes a tautological situation where um, basically the, the arguments used to create security become the arguments used to increase security. And nobody really dials it back and goes back. And as you know, all the research has shown, it, you actually engage in human and humane intervention right from the beginning and uh, treat people with respect and dignity and ensure their human rights are protected, you actually see very different behavior. And so in the few instances where we've seen those kinds of approaches or when we live them in community, when we have, uh, you know, we have greater substantive equality, you actually see uh, more peaceful, happier and more thriving communities. And so jails are becoming just the antithesis of that. And I think, you know, similarly, um, developing that kind of model for, for young people in youth detention for immigration detention is incredibly problematic, to put it lightly. And we should be looking at non-carceral ways of addressing issues. And we should also be looking at our responsibility of why we're seeing the migration patterns that are being fueled by, you know, unbridled capitalism and, uh, and the fact that we're not taking care instead to really address the, the human rights violations happening worldwide that, and the substantive inequality worldwide that is fueling many of the issues that we then um, use jails or detention centers or whatever word you want to use for them to try and contain people in, instead of addressing the fundamental inequalities. At this point, we wondered what Senator Pate would think of the alternatives to detention. She didn't know much about them, so we had to explain. Here's the conversation that we had. So um, as part of the same national immigration detention framework that introduced the plan to build the two new migrant prisons, there was also Mm -hmm. an announcement that the government would begin implementing what they're calling alternatives to detention for migrants. I don't know how much Mm -hmm. you know about those programs, but um, they're very similar to the programs that are in place already in the criminal justice system. They're things like community supervision programs that are literally going to be run by the John Howard Society um, for migrant migrants who are, you know, not being detained, but are being supervised in various ways. Um, And then there's going to be electronic monitoring. Um, They're already testing out what I assume is an ankle bracelet program of some kind in Toronto and a voice reporting program that's using voice biometrics that people would call from their cell phones to report in. Um, And I'm just curious, you've been an advocate for prison abolition for decades, and I'm wondering if you see these alternatives as fitting with a strategy for prison abolition. I, I don't. I think when we talk about decarceration, we're not talking about extending the arm, the criminal justice arm more and more into the community. We're, we should be talking about alternatives that are things like guaranteed livable income, free education, free health care, pharmacare, dental care, uh, because those are the things, the types of interventions that will create a more substantively equal uh, population. And we know that, in fact, a more unequal population the fastest growing uh, labor is guard labor. And that's exactly what, you know, that's the kind of responses that uh, electronic monitoring and private security forces and contracts to extend uh, what are now, you know, referred to as criminal justice interventions into other areas of life. I mean, uh, we already know that many, you know, it, it actually extends the, the perception that there are some people who are, you know, we need to be protected from or we need to keep away from the general population. And, you know, historically it was seen as okay to do that if someone wore the label criminal. Now it's increasingly okay to do it if they wear the label immigrant. And none of that really questions 
why is it certain groups who are more likely to be in these categories, those who are poor, whether they're, you know, immigrating or they come as refugee claimants or as um, migrant workers, you know, those who come as poor people as racial and are racialized are more likely to be among the groups that are then going to be policed. The John Howard Society received $4.9 million to implement these new alternatives to detention programs. We wonder if judges will start to feel more comfortable sending migrants and refugees to halfway houses, just like the judges who felt more comfortable sending women to prisons close to home. We wonder if the numbers of people caught in the immigration detention and deportation system will explode even further, just like the numbers of women incarcerated in the federal prisons skyrocketed in the 90s. We wonder if the government will find some security-related reasons to create segregation and maximum security cells in the new migrant prison. Given the history, this all seems highly likely. You're listening to the Prison Radio Show on CKUT 90.3 FM. It is 11.34. We are in the middle of a documentary about the migrant prison that is being built in Laval, Quebec, and hope you enjoy it. In the second half of this story, we want to focus on resistance to the new migrant prison and the alternatives to detention that come with it. From our research, it seems like resistance has been mounting. In the next clip, another host on the podcast from Embers reads a quote from Sylvie, someone who is involved in the struggle against the migrant prison in Montreal. In the quote, Sylvie talks about an action that happened in February 2019 in Laval. The action was a blockade of a site visit, where the Canadian Border Services Agency had invited companies wishing to make a bid to build the prison itself to come out to Laval and see the site and ask questions about the parameters of the contract. So the action against the site visit involved around 25 people going out to Laval, um, which is, it's a pretty secluded area. So where where they're building this new prison is actually on the street where there's a ton of other prisons. So there's one street in Laval. Um, it's Boulevard Monte Saint-Francois. And there's a really old prison that's no longer open where they just film movies. There's two federal prisons for men that are currently open. One is a multi-level and one is a minimum security prison. There's a provincial prison that currently is only holding women. And there's the current immigration detention center. And the site for the new immigration detention center, this new migrant prison, is actually like on ground that is owned by Correctional Services Canada, which runs the federal prisons in Canada. And it's right in front of the old provincial prison that's out there. So about Around 25 people went out to that street on the morning of February 20th, and the site visit was supposed to start at 9.30 in the morning, and we got out there right as it was supposed to start and went to this this kind of choke point on the roads leading into Leclerc, uh, the provincial prison that's out there, and we set up on a part of the road where it would make it pretty impossible for anyone who is coming to bid on the contract to get to the building that we knew they needed to get to in order to carry out the site visit. And then we had banners, 
We had music, we had people on the megaphone, and we basically blocked all of the cars that were trying to come in. And then we would go up and talk to people in the cars. Uh, and the basic, the first question was, why are you here? And if it was clear that they were here because they wanted to bid on this contract, we were like, you're not going to get through. Like, this has effectively become a blockade, and you're not going to get through to the site visit. And also, here's a bunch of information about this project and why you shouldn't do it. Like, why we think you guys shouldn't take the contract to build this new migrant prison. This is why we think it's a bad project. And any car that was like, I'm just trying to go to Leclerc, to the provincial prison, to pick up somebody from jail or visit somebody who's in jail, we would let them through. Um, so there was like a, a bit of, you know, maneuvering around so that certain cars could get through, but effectively blocking every single company car that was trying to get to the site visit. We had a lot of conversations with potential bidders. Um, those conversations went all kinds of different ways. Some people were fairly understanding. Um, one person just didn't understand at all that this was a contract to build a prison. They thought it was housing for migrants and a tiny prison, and we were able to debunk that idea that they had. Um, one person was fairly aggressive and, in fact, tried to push his car through while we were opening up the road for someone to get to Leclerc, but we didn't. Uh, we, like, we didn't let him through. We succeeded in not letting him through. Eventually, the Laval police showed up and asked for spokespeople, and no one talked to them. Around six to ten cops showed up and just stood around. They didn't bother us. They didn't try and move us in any way. Um, and eventually, the bidders started leaving. So we were in place from about 9.30 in the morning when the site visit was supposed to start until 11. And... By the time we left, there were three, maybe three-ish cars in the line, but not all of them were bidders. Some of them were prison staff who we also weren't letting through. And we decided by that point that we had significantly enough delayed the visit that even if those two cars went through, the vast majority of bidders weren't going to be going to the site visit and that it made sense for us to turn around and go home. LeMay and Group A were named as the designers and architects of the prison in 2017. They broke ground in 2018. A company called Loisel was involved in remediating the soil, but construction stopped for the winter. The bidding process for the general construction contract ended in early April 2019, and the winner has not yet been announced. LeMay and Group A will remain involved in the entire process no matter who is chosen for the construction. Resistance in Montreal at this point seems to have been focused on LeMay, who are also involved in gentrifying St. Henry, the historically working-class neighborhood where their new headquarters are located. Here is a fuller explanation of their involvement in gentrification from someone who works at the Housing Committee in St. Henry. The audio is from a speech given at a demonstration against the new migrant prison that happened in St. Henry in February 2019. Heads up, it's in French. We'll explain a bit more of what it says in English after. Euh, le mai, c'est vrai, la cible d'aujourd'hui, en fait, parce que euh, je pense qu'on va aller les visiter, euh, oui, ils ont un impact local. Puis, en fait, le, la, le bâtiment qu'on va aller voir, ce qu'il faut savoir, c'est que il appartient à une compagnie à numéro. Cette compagnie à numéro, c'est Monsieur Le Mai, mais c'est aussi Vincent Chiara. Puis Vincent Chiara, c'est le groupe Mac. 
Le groupe MA, qui est très connu à Montréal, c'est un des plus grands promoteurs immobiliers, un des plus grands gestionnaires immobiliers à Montréal. Il possède, par exemple, les 80% des actions de la Tour de la Bourse euh, au Square Victoria. Donc, le groupe MAC, c'est énorme, c'est le CN, c'est vraiment, si vous faites des recherches sur le groupe MAC, entre autres dans le Sud-Ouest, ils ont été très, très impliqués dans la gentrification, euh, dans, dans tous les gros projets. Ils ont leur propre projet immobilier, mais ils font aussi beaucoup de lobby. Par exemple, à l'époque, dans Griffin Town, c'était vraiment eux, Vincent Chiara, le groupe MAC, qui faisaient le lobby avec Devinco, par exemple, pour qu'il y ait un projet particulier d'urbanisme qui ont donné les euh, grandes tours à condo euh, de Griffin Town qui ont un, un impact maintenant tellement énorme sur le sud-ouest. Donc c'est vraiment, c'est eux qui vont euh, construire cette prison, mais ils ont exactement, comme tu disais tantôt, un impact déjà dans nos communautés en, en faisant énormément de lobby pour des projets qui viennent détruire aussi nos communautés. Quand le groupe MAC il a développé son projet en 2013, jamais, jamais il a été question que ça serait le bâtiment d'une seule entreprise. Le Mais à l'époque, et même il y avait eu beaucoup de résistance, parce que c'est sûr qu'on s'inquiétait de l'arrivée du groupe MAC dans cette grande bâtisse. On les avait vus à l'œuvre à Pointe-Saint-Charles. Tu sais, des fois, ils disent qu'ils font des bureaux, ça finit par être des condos. Donc, il y avait déjà eu de la résistance à l'époque. Et en fait, même à l'époque, ils, ils avaient monté toute leur communication sur le fait qu'ils allaient créer des emplois, des emplois locaux, que ça allait revitaliser le secteur, blablabla, bla bla, un discours qu'on entend souvent. Dans les faits, puis j'en parlais tantôt avec quelqu'un ici, c'est impossible d'aller travailler pour le groupe Le Mec quand tu habites à Saint-Henri. C'est pas du tout des emplois locaux, euh, c'est vraiment des emplois très spécialisés pour des jeunes professionnels qui, du coup, maintenant, veulent habiter dans le quartier et tassent les gens du quartier. Euh, on le voit, la gentrification, c'est des hausses de loyers à Saint-Henri, dans ce secteur-là, de 48, 38%. pardon, C'est énorme, les hausses de, de loyers. Oui, les revenus ont beaucoup augmenté, mais pas les revenus des gens de Saint-Henri. C'est les revenus des nouveaux employés de l'EMEI qui viennent s'installer dans le quartier qui font augmenter les moyennes. Donc, ça n'a aucun intérêt pour les gens du quartier euh, puis ils ont menti, ils n'ont pas créé des jobs locaux, ils n'ont pas redynamisé le coin, ils ont au contraire tassé les gens qui habitaient dans le quartier. Puis euh, c'est vraiment le même discours qu'ils ont utilisé pour le projet, ils parlaient beaucoup d'un projet vert. Ah oui, il y, y, y a un mur végétalisé, là vous allez voir, c'est vert en effet, mais c'est pas durable. Eux, ils parlaient d'un projet durable basé sur l'avenir. Dans les faits, qu'est-ce qu'ils ont fait Ils ont fait du nettoyage social. Au moment de la construction, c'était une, une bâtisse qui était abandonnée depuis des années, qui était occupée par des gens qui avaient besoin de l'occuper, qui avaient nulle part d'autre où rester. Il y avait la, la, le long de la piste cyclable en arrière du bâtiment. C'était c'était comme un des bouts de l'espace public qui était quand même assez caché à Saint-Henri et qui permettait à des gens de, de vivre finalement dans l'espace public. Eux, quand ils ont fait la construction, ils ont tassé tout le monde. Puis ils ont fait un bâtiment tout en vitre. Donc les jeunes professionnels, quand ils mangent leur lunch, ils veulent pas voir les personnes qui vivent dans l'espace public. Donc on les a tassés, ces gens-là. Ils ont plus de place. Donc c'est ça qu'il a fait le mai et, et c'est ça qu'ils ont fait le groupe MAC et le mai en s'installant dans le quartier. Donc finalement, on voit que que ce soit localement ou vraiment plus globalement avec un projet aussi scandaleux qu'une qu prison pour migrants, le groupe Le Mai, le groupe d'architectes, Vincent Chiara, le groupe MAC, tous ces groupes-là, c'est des champions de soi-disant l'acceptabilité sociale, mais dans les faits, ce qu'ils font, c'est démolir nos communautés quand, quand ils agissent localement. 
puis c'est faire des choses aussi scandaleuses que construire des prisons, ce sur quoi, contre quoi on manifeste aujourd'hui. In short, LeMay's headquarters in St. Henry is jointly owned by LeMay and Group Mac, a famous developer who is very involved in gentrifying different parts of the city. When the building that became LeMay's headquarters was first bought by Group Mac, the company promised the neighborhood that the building wouldn't become condos, but would instead become jobs for people in the neighborhood. In the end, they partnered with LeMay and opened the architect's headquarters there, which obviously really provides jobs for young professionals with the right degrees. The building itself also pushed out homeless people who lived in the formerly secluded park next to the bike path behind the building. LeMay has put up huge windows facing the little park and made a porch area onto the park for their employees. LeMay, not okay. We are gonna make you pay. LeMay, not okay. We are going to make you pay. In the last year, LeMay has been the target of a variety of actions. Crickets were released into their headquarters in April 2018. In March 2019, a condo development that they were working on was covered in paint and had its windows broken. And in April, all the locks in their building were glued or U-locked with bike locks, and the keypads for key fobs were all smashed. You can read communiques from all of these actions on the website Montreal Counterinfo. Here's some more audio from the demonstration that took place in front of LeMay's headquarters in February. This is Carmelo, who is also a part of Solidarity Across Borders. Uh, thank you very much for being here, compañeras, compañeras, camaradas. Uh, we are here to protest, uh, to show our uh, disagreement, our angerness against uh, this uh, very sick and violent institution, which is uh, the detention center. We are living in one of the healthiest, wealthiest, and freest countries in the world, and yet this system also builds that wealth, that healthiness, and that freedom out of the exploitation of migrant workers, people who are here precisely because they are escaping violence, dispossession, pain, and, uh, and, and, um, and the destruction in our, in our countries. And so, yet, the way in which we are treating them here is that we exploit them in the labor place, eh? we extract surplus value, we make wealth out of that, and then we build institutions with the support of these uh, uh, organizations, we build institutions to trap them when they, uh, they are not uh, useful anymore for our purposes. That is completely immoral, it's something that we, ca we can't accept, and so thank you very much for being here to protest and to express our rage against that. So, 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 solidarité avec, avec, avec les sans-papiers. We've covered a lot here, including information about migrant detention in general, what the National Immigration Detention Framework is, and how it is being implemented, the specific migrant prison being built outside of Montreal, and the so-called alternatives to detention that are now in use by the Canadian Border Services Agency with the help of nonprofits. We've also been making an implicit case for prison abolition. If we want to live in a world where everyone has access to the material things they need to survive and can live with dignity and respect, we need to start unlocking all the cages now. This is the end of our story about the new migrant prison slated to be built in Laval starting in the summer of 2019. We'll be sure to share updates about the struggle against the prison as they happen. To close out, we wanted to share a bit more audio from the documentary In the Shadow of Borders about local Montreal groups that are supporting migrants.
Here in Montreal, many community groups like the Immigrant Workers Center, Solidarity Across Borders, Mexicans United for Regularization, Agir, and Temporary Workers Associations are organizing with migrants around day-to-day -day challenges such as working conditions and sharing strategies and experiences on how to navigate the system. We try to break isolation through events like community dinners and art and performance shows and push for changes to immigration policy through media campaigns and public actions. This is part of a larger struggle uh, happening across Turtle Island and similar efforts are taking place in different Canadian For more information on the migrant prison specifically, you can check out stoppontheprison.info. That's S-T-O-P-P-O-N-S-L-A-P-R-I-S-O-N dot info. The site has posters that you can print and put up at your work or in your neighborhood, and a lot of information so you can get informed and tell your friends and family why they should oppose this new prison and the alternatives that come with it. Thanks for listening to this radio documentary about the new Migrant Detention Center, or what we've been calling a migrant prison, that is being built in Laval, Quebec. Thanks to everyone who gave us feedback on this documentary. Thanks to the folks who made the film In the Shadow of Borders, which you can find on YouTube, and to the people behind the podcast From Embers. The music you heard in this documentary was from the band Claiborne, who are online at claiborne-mtl.bandcamp.com. You can find the podcast version of this episode as a special addition to the podcast What Happened to Prisoner Justice Day, which is available through any podcasting app or online at prisonhistoryca.libsyn.com. You're listening to The Prison Radio Show on CKUT 90.3 FM. It is 11.51 in the morning, and we have an ad for you and then a song, and we're almost done. Whose data? Our data. When you're not paying for a product, you are the product. Especially in web and email services, where multinationals compete to manage your communication so they can make a profit off of the private communication you are producing. Kumbit is a worker cooperative trying to help small organizations or individuals get their email, website creation, and website hosting services off corporate services such as Google. For more information, contact us at kumbit.org or email at info at kumbit.org. That's K-O-U-M-B-I-T. We are not on Facebook.
That was the song Rebel by Zwirek. Uh, we're going to play a shout out and then we'll be gone for the day. This is the Prison Radio Show, coming to you straight from the CKUT radio station, located in the beautiful city of Montreal. Though we are always fighting for prisoners' rights, through our news, guest interviews, and opinion pieces, a personal, heartfelt shout-out of love and support to our brothers and sisters suffering behind bars can raise hope in a weary soul. And not only those within our 200-kilometer broadcasting area, but anyone who has access to our uploaded shows on www.ckut.ca or on CKUT 90.3 FM SoundCloud or on Prison Radio WordPress blog. We're worldwide, people. Never forget, you are not alone. We always have you in our thoughts and actions. Stay strong and keep the faith. You're listening to the Prison Radio Show on CKUT 90.3 FM, 91.7 on cable, and online at www.ckut.ca. You can check out past episodes of the Prison Radio Show at prisonradioshow.wordpress.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Prison Radio Show. The Prison Radio Show airs twice a month on CKUT. We're on the air on the second Thursday of the month at 5 p.m. and the fourth Friday at 11 a.m. The next Prison Radio Show will air on Thursday, June 13th at 5 p.m. If you have any questions on anything that you have heard on today's show, or if you wish to be involved with the show, feel free to contact us at prison at ckut.ca. Formerly incarcerated people are encouraged to participate. Folks can also leave a message on our listener comment line at 514-448-4041, extension 2547. If you are in prison, we encourage you to participate in the show in any way possible. Feel free to write us at The Prison Radio Show or simply PRS, care of CKUT, 3647 University Street, Montreal, Quebec, H3A, 2B3.
Yes, rehabilitation. I wonder if you know what the word means. Do you? It comes from the Latin root habilis. The definition is to invest again with dignity. You consider that part of your job, Harvey, to give a man back the dignity he once had? Your only interest is in how he behaves. You'll conform to our ideas of how you should behave. 